You're listening to Behold Diana. This is episode three. The distant echo of the name Diana would not always have evoked a response. I officially became Diana on April 20th, 1970, courtesy of a team of doctors at the Toronto General Hospital. They anatomically changed me from a male to a female. Prior to that time, I was Clifford Boylo, although for many years I lived under the alias of Diana. You see, unbeknown to me or my parents, I was born a transsexual. For my life history to be complete, I should list all my blue-blooded ancestors. This I am unable to do. I personally don't know or think about them. All I do know, with any degree of certainty, is that I was born a boy in a Winnipeg home for unwed mothers. I therefore have not the slightest idea of who or what my natural parents were, and I really see no reason for speculating on a spark from an unknown source. I accept the fact that my genealogy is obscure." Indisputably, an occurrence took place somewhere in Western Canada. A man and a woman met, maybe loved, but definitely made love, and I, Clifford, was the result of their intimacy. Man has little charge over his destiny, an even lesser charge over his being born. I therefore cannot tell you why I was born one New Year's Eve, nor why Winnipeg, Manitoba was the first place in the universe where I beheld the light of day. One thing I am sure of is that I relinquished my priority on my mother's lap at a very early age. I wasn't fussed over, caressed, or loved by my natural mother. She left me in a sterile orphanage to await the coming of adoptive parents who would take me into their hearts and home. Those loving parents were Leo and Mary Cecilia Erickson Boylo. They were very poor. At times, their very means of existence was precarious. Their humble home was small, their furnishings meager, and they had undergone and still do undergo many privations. But they clearly wanted a baby boy of their own. Mother was told by her doctors that she would never be able to bear a child. My mother is on the tall side, about 5'7", a large woman constantly fighting the battle of the bulge. She spent years combating almost every illness known to womankind. I remember her telling me about her Swedish mother and father who emigrated from Europe at the turn of the century. They settled in Minnesota, and later the family moved north to Canada, to Vassar, Manitoba. Her family were Lutheran in a sea of Catholicism. Her recollections of the hue and cry raised by her parents when, at the age of 20, she decided to marry my father, live with me still. Her father, who lived to be over 90, did not attend the actual ceremony. It would not speak to her for many years after her marriage. However, he eventually came to accept his son-in-law. It would be hard not to like and admire my father, who, in contrast to my mother, has a slight build and is short. Although uneducated and illiterate, he speaks French and English with equal fluency. This mastery of French has somewhat eluded me despite hearing it from my earliest days. I remember my paternal grandfather well. He mainly spoke French and always showered me with love and affection. Today, whenever I smell a certain type of pipe tobacco, I always think of Grandpa Boilo as he pulled me onto his knee and I plucked at his long white beard. My earliest recollections of life start around the age of three. I can remember being taken to the photographers to have my picture taken. 
It was dark and musty inside, but I remember being thrilled as I was helped up onto the chair where I stood in all my blonde, tousled glory. I still have that precious picture. It shows a chubby, curly-haired little boy in short trousers. To this day, I love being photographed. Having been adopted by a mother who was unable to have children ensured my place in the family as an only child. We had no electricity, running water, car, or television. Therefore, we were isolated for much of that time. I became a somewhat withdrawn, sensitive child, very dependent upon my parents. As their only son, I also became the center of both my parents' anxieties. Sometimes I sensed that my mother in particular was being overprotective toward me. She was not willing to let me take the physical and emotional bruises that are part of the growing up process of normal boyhood. Of course, I realize today that I was not a normal boy. I led a lonely life. I grew up very much by myself and within myself. Our little two-room house was completely isolated in the middle of nowhere. The house itself was at the end of a dirt road. It was white stucco on the outside and drab and dreary on the inside. The two rooms consisted of a living room come kitchen, complete with a large black range and a bedroom with a double bed and a small camp cot that I slept on. The house went with Dad's job as a forest ranger. It was not much, but it provided a roof over our heads and shelter and warmth from the harsh northern Manitoba winters. The tiny yard was covered with pine trees, black earth, and forgotten sheds. There was always the wind coming in sweeping gusts. Mother seemed permanently to have an off-white wash strung on a line, eternally flapping in the stiff breeze. The yard was surrounded by a broken picket fence that was warped and stooped with age. I loved to watch the crows that gathered on the fence and the way they soared into the sky as I slammed the broken screen door behind me when going outside. We had about three cows and several hens. Because we didn't have a hen house, the hens laid their eggs in grassy spots behind hillocks, near boulders and in different nooks and crannies. In the spring and summer, I used to rush outside in the early morning to hunt for the precious eggs. Mother wasn't too happy about my egg hunts, preferring to do the chore herself. She had an inordinate fear of my coming into contact with porcupines who sought sanctuary in our small acreage of cleared land. Her fears were groundless, for no harm ever came to me. My love and trust of all animals is still with me today. I used to nibble at the large hunks of red salt that were spread around the pasture for the cows. Clifford, stop licking that salt. You'll get all kinds of diseases. I can remember mother yelling from the back porch, but I never caught any of the dire ailments, and I continued to share salt with my bovine friends, always making sure mom wasn't looking. I remember one year tragedy. I was wandering around the field, not looking where I was going, when suddenly I tripped. The next thing I knew, I was up to my neck in water, screaming for mother. I'd fallen into the cow's watering hole. Mother heard my yells, and I was rescued. One of my pet idiosyncrasies was to hide in one of the sheds on the property and pretend to be lost. Mother would frantically search all over, fearing I had drowned or was at least impaled by a porcupine quill. With a satisfied grin on my face, I would stay hidden and silent. This streak of stubbornness and wanting to be alone has carried over to my adult years. For despite the fact that I love people, I still enjoy my own company very much and am apt once in a while to go into my private retreat. Loneliness in the midst of people is not new to me. Looking back on these early years, I realized that my whole world was bounded by my mother and father. I found that when I was good, which was not that often, I was the only one praised. When I was obstinate and reticent, I was the only one punished. I tried very hard, even at such a young age, to be everything to my parents. 
I knew that money was a scarce commodity, and somewhere deep inside me, I, Clifford, wanted to achieve for my family everything material they had failed to achieve for themselves. This stress, which for the most part I had brought upon myself, produced a feeling of inadequacy. Of course, there were many positive things I think I accomplished. Being an only child bestowed on me a certain authoritarian role in life. I am consequently used to having my demands met. Proof of this was to come much later in life when I was to overcome almost insurmountable obstacles to achieve my lifelong goal. Ever since I can remember, my father waged a long struggle against total blindness. This condition was later aggravated by his work as a forest ranger from peering into the sunlight for hours on end, looking for telltale wisps of smoke that could foretell a fire that would sear the forest and leave it a devastated mess of charred embers. With the passage of time, his eyes grew weaker and he became semi-blind. These relatively carefree days in the Canadian bush were soon to end. Dad's eyes got progressively worse, and we were forced to return to Winnipeg. The eye specialist diagnosed cataracts of both eyes. He was unemployable and given a meager government pension for the blind. Mother remained steadfastly at father's side. It was during this time that she started reading aloud to him newspapers, books, and letters. She still does. She's his own personal talking braille, swaying gently back and forth in a rocking chair. She reads in an endless monotone. Despite all her years of practice, I don't think she's received any offers of employment to be a newscaster on any local radio stations. Nevertheless, Dad thinks she's great. Our move back to Winnipeg was to change our way of life considerably. Gone were the open fields, the cows, and the chickens. In their stead, a musty rooming house on a shabby street at the corner of Carlton and St. Mary's. We lived a few houses away from St. Mary's Convent, and the comings and goings of the nuns were a constant source of fascination to me. The nuns, unbeknown to themselves, cheered up many a lonely day for me as I peered in wonderment at them from a second-floor bed sitting room. My first sexual experience was foisted on me at the tender age of four. I have a distant recollection of an alleyway that ran past the back of the convent to our house, and I used it as a shortcut to the grocery store when running errands for Mom. The alley was flanked on either side by garages. I felt sure they could whisper a thousand things they had seen, but they never did. One day in particular is very vivid in my mind. I was jauntily walking and skipping through the alleyway. It was about 2.30 in the afternoon in early May. I was going to the corner grocery store for some shopping. I met a young man on a bicycle who offered me a ride on the crossbar. This was a real treat for a four-year-old, so I gladly accepted. We rode up and down the alleyway to the accompaniment of my gleeful giggles and whoops of joy. My newfound friend stopped the bicycle and asked if I'd like to see his new sleeping bag, which was inside one of the garages. What's a sleeping bag? I wondered. I was soon to find out. With childlike curiosity and trust, I followed him to inspect his new possession. Once inside the garage, he closed the creaking door behind us. The only light poured through the gaping cracks in the roof. Still, my inquisitiveness and reliance on my older friend did not falter. I was not afraid. When he lay down on the sleeping bag and drew me on top of his prostate body and started to fondle me, I still didn't resist or complain. Why should I? I loved being kissed and hugged. This was de rigueur among my assorted aunts and uncles. Of course, their hugs and kisses were not carried out on a garage floor in semi-darkness. But then, I was a mere child. My mind didn't question his motives or actions. He undid his pants zipper with a grating sound of metal upon metal. He put his hand inside and produced his large swollen penis, which, compared to a four-year-old boy's, was enormous. He started to work his hand up and down its entire length. He took my tiny hand in his and guided it up and down with his right hand. 
I could feel the engorged veins and the pleasant warmth. Suddenly, he started to groan, and a flood of whitish liquid was spewed from his penis all over my hand. It was sticky, and I tried to wipe it off on his pants. He was lying with his eyes glazed, peering toward the ceiling. He was content. I, a small boy, had acquiesced to all his demands. It was only when he cautioned me to absolute secrecy that I realized all was not well. Why couldn't I tell Mom and Dad? I raced home. Then I remembered the shopping that had not been done. I thought Mother would be mad, and I became frightened and started to cry and cry. A girl who was obviously a student at the convent came over and asked me what the matter was and where I lived. Between sobs, I gave her my address, at least pointed in the general direction of our house. She took me gently by the hand, wiped away my tears with a somewhat grubby handkerchief, and led me homeward. Mother couldn't fathom how I was lost in a locale I knew so well. It just didn't make sense. She thanked the girl profusely for bringing me home safely, and took my hand as we climbed the rickety stairs to our top floor room. I shivered from all my sobbing. Within myself, I vowed I would never go near the alleyway again. What happened, Clifford? My voice somehow betrayed my nervousness. Nothing, Mom. Really, my face was white. Mother whispered incredulously. My God, no. Father Couture, his stern face, never betraying an inner kindness, stood silently and reverently at the foot of the altar. Dominus vobiscum, he intoned in a sonorous voice. Ecum spirito tuo, came my halting response. From where I knelt at the right hand, lower steps of the altar, I could see Father Couture's profile. It was rugged, yet sculptured. I gathered my cassock around my knees and shivered inwardly. Outside the church, an early morning snowfall, which at first had merely veiled the rooftops, descended in great bellows. Myriads of flakes wafted down and twinkled and danced between buildings. Some caught on window panes or fluttered between porticos, but most came to rest on the street. At 6 a.m., the little town of Rainy River in northern Ontario still slept. The sky was a leaden, inky black. My solace had become the Catholic Church. Under the guidance of my teacher, the Sisters of St. Joseph, serving as an altar boy at the early morning Mass, was a daily ritual. I remember creeping out of my warm bed before dawn of one particular November morning. I dressed in my warmest clothes and tiptoed down the creaking stairs and out into the bitter cold. My starch surplus caused me some anxious moments. I carried it under my arm as if it were made of gold cloth. It must, despite wind squalls, wet snow and freezing temperatures, arrive at the church wrinkle-free and vestal white. Dense snow clouds overhead unleash snow flurries. The ever-present wind, blowing ferociously, forced me to walk sideways to avoid its bite. I plunged my hands deep within my warm pockets to keep them from numbing. With a dull thud, 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 I plodded on through the crisp snow, whistling to allay the loneliness. The penetrating cold deadened every other sound. After about 20 minutes' walk, I arrived at a section of town from where I was able to see the whole length of the main street. The tower of St. Michael's Church pierced the sky. Its stone facade majestically towered over the dingy shops, garages, and homes. Upon reaching the church, I climbed the five steps that were piled high with wind-driven snow. I stamped my boots on the uppermost step to loosen the snow and ice that persisted in sticking to the soles. I pulled open the heavy oak door 
and went inside. Over at the presbytery, Father Couture was bravely trying to wake himself up sufficiently to say Mass. He stood before his mirror, shaving away at a heavy growth of overnight black stubble. His electric razor whirred spasmodically. He rubbed his hands over his face to make sure he had not missed any stray whiskers. He pulled up his black suspenders, buttoned up his shirt, and put on his black waistcoat and suit jacket, which were on a nearby chair. Glancing once more in the mirror, he left the bathroom and hurried downstairs to the musty hallway. Here he put on his heavy winter coat, black earmuffs, and indispensable snow boots. Usually he would arrive at the church 15 minutes before Mass was scheduled to begin. This morning was to be no exception. He glimpsed at his watch. He would be just on time. As I entered the church, an immediate sense of well-being and security came over me. No longer was I haunted by misgivings about my masculinity. I somehow felt warm and glowing, like the candles in front of the statues. They flamed until extinguished. My personal flame was doused when I went each day from the safety and peace of St. Michael's to the cruel taunts of the boys at school. I was glad to be in the church. It was warm inside. The air was thick with the smell of incense and candles. Near the doorway stood a rack of pamphlets that was sort of a trademark in Catholic churches. The booklets bore such literary titles as The Eucharist Today, St. Teresa of Avila, and The Perplexed Catholic. I pulled off my right glove and dipped my finger into the ice-cold holy water. I made a hasty sign of the cross, bobbed a genuflection, and hurried up the aisle towards the sacristy. Under my left arm, I clutched my surplice, which I hoped was still spotless and wrinkle-free. The church was silent and desolate, save for the flickering lone sanctuary light. I lingered a moment in the doorway, twisted the door handle, and stepped inside. Father Couture had not yet arrived, and I unzipped my jacket and hung it on a hook behind the door. I sat on a chair and struggled to pull off my boots. I slipped into a pair of scruffy black brogues that I kept in a brown paper bag underneath a chair. I donned my black cassock, then carefully unrolled my treasured surplice. I noticed that there were some small puckers from holding it too tightly, but otherwise it was in excellent shape. I pulled it over my head, then smoothed it down. It reminded me of a girl's long party dress. I loved to wear it. My black cassock was at least three sizes too large. Because I was the youngest and smallest of the altar boys serving at St. Michael's, it was impossible to get one to fit. Mother had tried to shorten it with the safety pins around the hem, but it was still too long. I must remember, I thought, to hold it up when I walked up the altar steps. I didn't want to trip as I had done the morning before. I went over to the prie-dieu and laid out the black vest because it was to be a mass for the dead. Mrs. Roberts, a devout parishioner, had given Father Couture $5 to say this one for her departed husband on the second anniversary of his death. I had the black cloth that covered the chalice in my hand when the door opened to reveal Father Couture standing in the doorway. Good morning, Clifford, he smiled. I see you beat me to it again. I noticed he was breathing heavily from his brisk walk, and his face was bright red from the cold. I busied myself putting the final touches to the fold of the vestments. I stood quietly and patiently to one side while he roped. I think we're ready now, Clifford, he inquired. Have you lighted the candles? I don't think there'll be too many here this morning. Too cold. I took a long taper and went behind the altar to kindle the frozen white candles. They were placed one on either side of the tabernacle. As I reached up on tiptoe, my stomach rumbled. I remembered I hadn't eaten because I was to receive Holy Communion. I glanced toward the congregation. Father Couture was right. Apart from Mrs. Roberts, swaddled in black and bowed deep in prayer, the remainder of the congregation numbered six souls. I returned to the sacristy in a firm sotto voce, his head and eyes cast down, his hands joined. Father Couture said, let's go, Clifford. I preceded him toward the altar 
and prayer. It was, properly speaking, a low mass. That is to say, it was very simple. No hymns or sermon. Consequently, it was much shorter than a regular Sunday mass, even though it lasted for only about 20 minutes. It was my habit to spend some of that time daydreaming. One of my favorite reveries was about school. I had been happy there, at least when I was around my dear sisters, Helene and Blondin. They helped me so often to suffer the ridicule of the other boys in my grade, who of late had taken to nicknaming me Skirts and Pants. For it was only now that I was realizing I was different from other boys, at least in their eyes. In my own, I was perfectly normal. What if I did prefer playing with dolls and little girls? They somehow complimented my lack of stature and feminine features. The boys at the convent spent recess playing marbles, hockey, and football, according to the season. And this somehow proved their masculinity. I detested all these pastimes. Music became my escape from their cruel jeers. An escape whereby I could release my pent-up anxieties and emotions. It was Sister Helene who suggested I take piano lessons. She was delighted with my progress. My long, slender fingers were able to stretch over an octave, and I soon became very proficient. I graduated from five-finger exercises to Chopin valses in a period of about two years. There was one major drawback to all this progress. We didn't have a piano at home. Not only could we not afford one, but the small area of our glorified shack precluded such a luxury. Eventually, after long negotiations with my parents, the sisters decided to make an exception and allow me to practice at school. Moreover, it was also decided to enter me in the local Kiwanis Festival at Fort Francis. This, in turn, produced a love of performing before live audiences I still retain. I remember the day of my first recital vividly. I sat on a bare stage in the town auditorium. Before me was a grand piano that was a far cry from the out-of-tune upright of unknown pedigree at school. I was dressed in my best suit, which had been scrubbed and re-scrubbed by mother to a gleaming white. I was nervous, yet calm, conceited, yet humble, and unbeknown to myself, boy, yet girl. All these contradictions were contained within the framework of one blonde ten-year-old boy. I played the intermezzo from A Midsummer Night's Dream, and the applause as I touched the final note was even more music to my ears. I bowed stiffly. My eyes braved the audience just long enough to catch the radiance on Mother's face. As usual, Dad was prevented from attending by his work. Sister Helene discovered I had talents not only for the piano and organ, but that I also possessed an excellent boy soprano voice. Under her special tutelage, I improved my Latin pronunciation and avidly practiced breath control and vocal scales. All of this diligence was rewarded by my being the feature soloist at Midnight Mass. I was also entered in more festivals. Festivals. This time, as a vocalist, a very scratchy recording lies hidden somewhere at home, very worn from the almost daily spin it was given for many years by my doting parents. In class, I loved acting, everything from skits to charades. These culminated in the annual school concert. It wasn't a true concert in the sense of the word. More accurately, it should have been designated a review, but the convent was against this classification. A convent, any convent, has a complexity of rules and regulations peculiar to itself. One of these is the naming of various functions. The term review was frowned on as not being quite nice. Mother Superior had the final say in such matters, and she opted for the ambiguous name Concert because she associated review with such sin-filled emporiums as the Victory Burlesque Theatre in far-off Toronto. The concert as such consisted of piano recitals, choral renditions, monologues, and plays. One in particular was made even more special by the presence of no less a personage than the Most Reverend Bishop 
of Winnipeg. For weeks in advance of the great night, the nuns had rehearsed and re-rehearsed for the command performance. It was, given the limitations of the town of Rainy River, a gala occasion. All the notables from the city council, members of the faculty of the rival public school, and some of their students were in attendance. My debut was listed as number three on the hand-painted programs that had been individually designed by the sisters. Due to the many hours it took to print these in Old English, there were only six copies available. For the masses, the events were scrawled on a chalkboard located to the left of the stage. This, to my mind, was a class distinction at its very worst. Those who sat clutching programs were truly the elite. By their programs ye shall know them, whispered a girl at my side as the curtain was about to go up. I played the part of a drunken wedding guest. I entered into the spirit with gusto. I staggered and weaved all over the stage, glass in hand, urged on to even greater heights of drama by the laughter and obvious delight of the crowds. Their sporadic giggles turned to a deafening roar as at my most dramatic moment, I missed my footing and fell off the stage right into the lap of the very corpulent bishop. When I realized what had happened, my first impulse was to cry, but instead I joined His Excellency and the audience in peals of laughter. Behold Diana is produced by Borderland Pride. This episode was a reading from Behold I Am a Woman, a novel by Diana as told to Felicity Cochran. It was performed by Christine Denby of Fort Francis Little Theatre and recorded and edited by Caitlin Hartland. Our music is by The Night Driver, and our sound was mixed by MJ Interactive. <laughs>